case file number 1.11. That's a nice internet you have there, part two. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject one, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, uh, what did you think of the of ransomware part one? Any big surprises? It's very interesting. I think the best part of that was the uh, the guy that was mailing floppy disks. <laughs> the people I actually brought that up. Um, I told a few of my coworkers about the podcast, and we're talking about the ransomware episode, and they were like, "Wait, was there there stuff like that far back?" And I was like, "Oh yeah, like you know, he just went over uh, this dude mailed floppy disks, and that was ransomware." And one of them was like, "Yeah, be freaking kidding me." <laughs> It is cited in several academic uh, works. It is, it is uh, like, I didn't authenticate it directly, but uh, several academic papers on this absolutely were like, nope, this is the same thing. Um, <laughs> buckle up. It's time for part two, when ransomware went big time. So the first big one, the one that we, that a lot of people remember hearing about is CryptoLocker. Mm-hmm. And it was distributed via a botnet that already existed. Um, version one of the Zeus botnet was first seen in, in, um, in 2007 and somebody had made a toolkit out of it. Um, the version that distributed all of this stuff was called Game Over Zeus and the Game Over version of the botnet had been uh, operating since about 2011. Okay. It was mostly used for doing things like stealing banking credentials. That's really what it was focused on and it Based on the numbers I was seeing, it probably made more money doing that. (laughs) But they started lending out their botnet, or at least parts of their botnet, for distribution of CryptoLocker. And like we were saying in the previous episode, there are things that you want to do to make crypto malware work. And that has to do with using good crypto implementation being having a command and control network that you can maintain having a archive uh, having an ability to manage your the decryption keys and such yeah. well in terms of using good crypto they went with a very widely used uh, cryptographic set of libraries windows crypto api oh really okay yeah they they leveraged the internal windows uh, cryptography libraries in order to do huh. this which is smart um it means that you're p- packing less c- code. This is uh, if you you've uh, ever heard people talking about return-oriented programming and uh, uh, malware and and other kinds of attempts to kind of keep your abadello low. One of them is a concept called living off the land, and that's leveraging as much of the internal API calls uh, and libraries that you can instead of injecting your own stuff. And, right. Which is why this is like, this is an example of that kind of thing going right. And by doing that, you make some of, 
you make detecting this about behavior and less about code detection. It's a little bit easier to be polymorphic with your code when you don't have that specific stuff. So you know, we'll go a, uh, a little bit further um, on exactly how it worked, but then we'll talk about some of the con conclusions that came out of the analysis of CryptoLocker. Um, another thing that it did was it was using what at the time had become pretty standard. Oh, sorry, this is operating in uh, 2013, started seeing it in 2013, and it lasted until about 2014. So like right around, I think just when I got out of college initially. Yeah, and really when we started seeing a lot of um, this kind of stuff ramp up and become completely businessified. This is this is really one of the one of the places where we see that huge flip to operators to the adversary really focusing on how to monetize things at scale. I'm vaguely remembering I think I had like some old lady in the area that we lived in uh, that I did like random IT stuff for just to help out. And I think she got this on her laptop at one point and locked everything. And she was asking me what I could do. And I was like, absolutely nothing. Like, I can't reverse that. Yeah, as it turns out, this was a really tough one. There was eventually good news, but for a good chunk of time, there wasn't. They were dynamically generating domain names and using fast flux uh, botnet con command and control techniques in order to maintain command and control. Um, so it wasn't just one IOC of an IP address or a domain name. Right. They they were constantly generating a set of domain names based on time. So blocking one doesn't help you. It doesn't permanently lock things out. Mm -hmm. Now, as it turns out, the domain generating algorithm that they used was the one straight off of Wikipedia. Really? Yeah, they changed the constants, but it was the exact same piece of code. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what that meant was, so there was a group of, there was a group of few of, um, researchers it ended up being a little bit more than 160 of them and they did a and they, some of the folks that were involved with that ended up doing a presentation at black hat in 2014 2015 um i will have it in the show notes um that presentation because i was there at that one and that's what got me interested in doing this whole set of episodes right um and they banded together as a uh or they started mailing between themselves about things that they were discovering. And this is another one of those things where the folks that are actually dealing with botnets and these kinds of malware is generally the security research community and not the uh, not law enforcement, or at least not initially law enforcement. Mm -hmm. The folks that we go to to look at all of this stuff, they're the leading edge of research. Almost invariably, even now, it has been my experience that... Um, that unless something specifically came out of a particular intelligence report, chances are very good that that the best research is available from commercial sources. Yeah, yeah. Now, to my knowledge, as far as that goes, there has never been any kind of robust analysis of what the classified side has uh, versus what the commercial size has what the overlap is and what is what only came from one source to the other. Right. I'm actually really interested in the in the results of that, but I've never seen anybody do the analysis because I don't think that the 
I think that you could release the analysis without releasing any of the examples on the classified side, but I think it would be a really useful thing for us to know how much the cyber intelligence that's coming from the classified side is worth and how much we might be missing being on the public, uh, anybody on the, uh, on the using public side information. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you don't have access to, to that information, because Homeland Security has had several attempts at programs to help protect industry. And it's like, well, what is the empirical value of that? But I mean, I'm going off on a major tangent of one of my little hobby horses. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so this this team did a lot of the deconstruction and were working between themselves uh, to figure out how to deal with this. And what they started to do is when they figured out the domain generation algorithm and the seeding that they were using, they were able to stay a day ahead. And turns out that the attackers weren't pre-registering the domain names oh. far enough in advance. Oh, so they were just like gobbling them up before they get to them? Exactly. Ah, uh, I got you. So part of the the part of foiling and slowing down CryptoLocker was the fact that command and control was being uh, disrupted by re the research community uh, registering a lot of the domains that were going to be come up in the domain generation algorithm. Huh, interesting. We know that distribution probably hit around 100,000 or so hosts. We know that that skewed towards English-speaking countries, the majority of which, like 60,000 or so of which, were U.S. hosts. But, um, but it's one of those kind of important things to know the language distribution of of malware some of the subsequent pieces of malware we're going to see didn't really hit the u.s possibly because of targeting but very likely because of language right so this is an this is actually another example going back to um our operation ghost click episode where law enforcement got involved they um started up an operate operation tolver which had cybercrime law enforcement offices from all over the world uh, several universities and cybersecurity companies. Um, I believe that Carnegie Mellon and and and, and a few other universities were, did active research in terms of the deconstruction of the binary and stuff. Mm. Uh, so they they had pretty pretty important contributions towards understanding what was going on. Yeah. So the subject of the search and seizure was Yevgeny Mikhailovich uh, Bogachev, uh, aka Slavic. Uh, was his handle. So they were targeting, they had identified a particular person and they were targeting that person. Um, when they went in, they seized the servers and in and all the data in the servers, they were able to analyze that. They were both able to figure out who got hit because they got some idea of who got hit when they registered command and control and finding out who contacted them. Right, yeah. But that doesn't let them work backwards. Yeah. And maybe it's imperfect. Um, well, they were able to to uh, identify a larger scope of victims, and they were able to, using the information that they seized, offer decryption information. Mm, okay. And there was a site out there, which I didn't put in my notes. I think it actually was called Decrypt Crypto Locker. Okay. .org, I think. Um, Interesting. And it, yeah, nowadays you can find that, but I think it's run by Kaspersky, might be. Um, but what, what it was, it's run by the antivirus company that originally put the other, the, the original one up, 
you can find it, but it's, you probably aren't in a situation where you have data that's important that hasn't already been decrypted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's interesting because like, I remember, you know, obviously when it was starting to come about, there's tons of news on it, everyone's freaking out. Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of like fell to the wayside in like, terms of the news and I didn't really keep up on it. So yeah, I didn't know what had ever happened. Like, you know, you don't hear about it now. So I if I hadn't been at that Black Hat talk, I would not have known that there was a takedown. And honestly, some of the details of the fact that it was a large law enforcement operation that had its own name, I didn't know even having gone to that Black Hat talk. Uh, didn't realize that until I was doing the research for this episode. Yeah, yeah. We've seen other versions of, of, of this called Crypto Defender or Crypto Wall, but none of them was quite as, well, I wouldn't say quite as successful, but none of them were so outstandingly successful that, that they showed up in the news. Yeah. You said, what was the operation? Tovar? Uh, T-O-V-A-R. Tovar. Oh, okay. I might have put an L in there because, you know. So Crypto Locker used a combination of Bitcoin and uh, a service called, I think, MoneyPack. And there were a few other malware pieces that happened between the 2014 crypto locker takedown, but uh, it really started going into turbo when they went full Bitcoin, which started at the beginning of 2016. Okay. And the two most important ones in that era are Locky and Cerber. Locky was distributed via the Never botnet, uh, which used uh, malware spam um, from multiple exploit kits to distribute it. It was first seen in February 2016 um, and it was running for about a month. Um, the Mumble botnet that was used for command and control was shut down by the cyber po police of Ukraine uh, at the end of the month on the 29th of, of February 2016. Hmm. Um, and then Cerber was first seen in March of 2016. And then the second version um, showed up at the very end of July in 2016. And the interesting thing about this one was it was ransomware as a service. They provided the command and control network. They, they provided uh, a toolkit for building it, but they basically sold out to people the opportunity to distribute it via whatever distributing method they wanted to do. And, and so oh, okay. uh, the network would take a cut and, the, and then they, they pass on the rest of it to, to the folks on the infection side. <laughs> and because of this, the distribution methods, that, though it was the same essential piece of malware, the same monetization method, it was a lot of different vectors to get that onto systems. Right. So it makes it a little bit harder to track because instead of having the IOCs of the infection vector, you have to track the actual malware. Yeah. Which, you know, you end up with a lot more often than I think we like when you look at when, when you look at the IOC lists, you get either commercially or from SISA or, or wherever. It's usually indicators related to behavior of captured machines which is all up, which ends up being stuff related to that particular attack, not necessarily the campaign in, in its entirety, which is fine when those two things don't change that much, but it's a big deal when they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But the reason why those two are so important is there was another presentation in Black Hat 2017 by uh, Enver Nizzi. Uh, so the presentation was called Tracking Ransomware End-to-End. -end. And what he did was he said, all right, we have a bunch of these ransomware things and we have their blockchain 
um, their, their Bitcoin wallet IDs. So we can use the blockchain because the blockchain is available to everybody mm -hmm. to figure out how much, how much Bitcoins they're getting. We don't necessarily need to attribute the, the people who are sending the Bitcoins. All we need to know is the volume. Okay. So, I mean, going back to episode one, where we're talking about the FBI and having the bit and having the serial numbers, this is a, this is a similar kind of thing where we now have the ability to get some insight into the flow of money. Right. Yeah. Because of the anonymity or pseudo I should probably say pseudo anonymity built into Bitcoin, you can't attribute a wallet to a person for a legal action or anything like that, but you can see the flow mm. and. He did. He <laughs> looked into this. Um, so in the graphs that he published, there's a, there's a very significant increase in the amount of uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, Bitcoins used for these wallet addresses at the beginning of 2016. Um, so we see this real spike in the use. And the other thing is that Lockheed and Server together in the span of his analysis, uh, got about about fifteen million, a little bit less than fifteen million dollars. Damn. Together, so uh, one was a little bit less than seven million. One was almost eight. Oh, okay, yeah. Still, the the next one was Crypto Locker, mm -hmm. or the current version of Crypto Locker, which was at two million. Really, they only broke pulled in two million. Yeah, well, it was two million for that period of time. Oh, okay. In Bitcoins. Gotcha. Uh, this was after their takedown, obviously. Yeah, okay, that makes more sense. Total crypto locker is attributed in getting around twenty-five million dollars. Hmm, okay, uh, which is a little surprising, um, considering how much news it made. It did, was not as profitable as you might have thought. And again, I thought I was surprised at how much money we saw uh, was attributed to the Zeus banking theft stuff versus how much the uh, the crypto ransomware actually made. Yeah, yeah, that is kind of interesting to see, like, like you were saying, that you're just stuck with uh, stealing the bank and stuff and uh, doing the ransomware. Well, I think that they were thinking that one wouldn't interfere with the other, mm -hmm. but in fact, um, I think it's important to note as far as that goes that because of the takedown that occurred, that may have only occurred because of Crypto Locker, they had the entire botnet taken down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they were just—they might have just been thinking, like the uh, candy aisle coming into the checkouts at a supermarket. I have all—I'm going to get you to spend all your money on the stuff in your cart, but maybe I'll get you to spend a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I've already got what I can get out of the out of the banking operations, but maybe the folks that I didn't get anything out of there, or even some of the folks that I did, I can also get them to pay for. We can also get them to pay because of crypto ransomware. Okay, and, double dip and yeah. If they didn't think that I was going to hurt their other business, their primary business, then hey, why not? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I thought that that was very interesting that 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 these two dominated the money via Bitcoin within that time period, even with Lockheed only being around for about well, the main the main Lockheed variant only being around for about a month. It's a pretty good turnaround for like a month. Yeah. I will admit that the, the the graph data that he had available doesn't let me say Lockie made this and the other one made that uh, as well. Um, he has that data. I just, you know, 
didn't email him about it. Maybe we'll do a follow-up at some point. Yeah. So then we move on to Petya. Petya was first observed in 2016, and it propagated using a malicious PDF email attachment. But what it wanted to do, what the first version did, was try and encrypt your master boot record. Mm, okay. But in order to do that, it needed admin level access. And if it didn't have admin level access, it started doing the regular crypto malware thing. Okay, so I had like a fallback. Yeah, uh, I couldn't find a really good write up on the um, on the takedown of Petya. I think it got mostly foiled due to virus detection. Mm. Mostly because they're the, the the one of the next two viruses we're talking about, one of the next two campaigns we're talking about is a virus called not Petya, <laughs> which is probably not you, which was probably not distributed by the same people, probably not, but used a lot of the same code. Yeah. Um, so the important part about but our next two big guys, were, which are not Petya and WannaCry is a vulnerability dubbed Eternal Blue. Mm. Do you remember this one? Yep, yep, I definitely remember um, Bausch, uh, like a security, security model, I think. I think it's one of the ones I listened to. They did like a whole hour long write up on Eternal Blue. And uh, I think what was most shocking was just how many people have RDB open to the internet. And I was like, you gotta be freaking kidding me. But then, you know, we just got that um, remote code execution uh, exploit that just came out the vCenter. And again, they were like, oh yeah, there's like a shit ton of like vCenter appliances open to the, the internet. And I was like, yeah, what the hell? Like, why? Yeah. Well, also there's the whole Hafium thing that's really recent that is exchange servers being available via the internet. Yeah. yeah. Like, hey, stop putting things on the internet. Jeez. Well, exchange servers, you Microsoft was telling you to do that with your Outlook web access and stuff. Oh, were they? I've, I've never, thankfully, or, dealt with Exchange. I wouldn't say that they told you to do it that way. That's probably going too far, but they made it easy for small implement, relatively small implementations. You've got one Exchange server and you want to make Outlook web access work. Putting it all on one system is gonna happen more often than you think yeah yeah or maybe as often as you think but um the idea of separating server roles and otherwise separating some of that stuff is a luxury that you have if you have the budget it's actually sort of easier now um because the way the licensing works for uh, windows server it allows you to run two vms on the server oh i didn't know that I, I just found this out, yeah, because I was, I'm trying to set up a password, this is a complete tangent, but I'm trying to set up a password reset tool for my AD environment. Uh -huh. uh, PWM is one of the open source ones, kind of crap to set up, it runs a Java, and it's just clunky. But someone just basically wrote a script you can throw on IIS um, and get it running. But I obviously don't want to run IIS on my, you know, um, AD. Domain control. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, uh, like is this, this is a bad idea, right? And I was reading around and someone went, yeah, it's a bad idea. Don't do that. However, just build a VM and run it in the VM instead. So I was like, huh, interesting. That is interesting. This is to just, you know, keep digressing down on that tangent. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is virtual machines versus containers versus serverless. How you kind of juggle what 
level of uh, abstraction you want. Right. Because different implementations want different levels of stuff. Um, our website, which is not hard to figure out if you're trying to figure it out, is run as a serverless website through AWS. Mm -hmm. um, and if you spend any time looking at how things are redirected, you will figure that out pretty quickly. Um, but like building that site versus a container using Apache versus creating a web server. Um, part of the reason that we wrote it the way that we wrote it is because I didn't find and everything was trying to assume that you were running on a server. And I'm like, that seems more expensive and probably more operational work and less secure than me running it the way that I'm, that we're, that we're running it. Yeah. yeah. But if we weren't starting from whole cloth, if I didn't have an itch to play around with serverless stuff in, in AWS, mm -hmm. um, it wouldn't have been worth the operations and maintenance time to do it in what may have ended up being the right way to do something like that. And it's like, okay, how do I write a, you know, flowchart for what decisions to make for any given organization, let alone as like a best practice thing. Oh, whether you go virtualization, go container. Regular server, virtualization, containerization, mm -hmm. serverless, um, or well, cloud software as a service. Um, those ideas, I I, yeah. I know that. that I'll, I'll say on the Nest side of things, our main driving factor for, well, for me when I'm setting up is the software they're using. And nine times out of 10, it drives me freaking crazy that still to this day in 2021, they have applications that they need a shared account amongst all the users to run. And everyone has to log into the same, same desktop to run it and everything. And it can't be containerized. And yeah, it, it's just, it's horrible. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. There, uh, You get a lot of concurrency things that don't work the way that they were designed because of the way that they access the data store and, and how permissions work and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And what do you do about that stuff? But like, and my agency right now uh, is running a one of their major public facing websites as a set of virtual machines that are in a load balancer. And a lot of what they're serving up, a lot of um, what's causing them some performance impact is that they're serving up lots of files, which would be way easier if they threw, if they distributed those files either through the content distribution engine that's built into whatever cloud you want to use. Amazon's got one. Everybody's got one. Yeah. Or even just the store, just an S3 storage bucket would take that load off of their servers to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And make them probably more available. Yeah. Even getting that engineering work is like, we'll put it in the backlog and we'll get to it sometime <laughs> in the next administration. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, enough admin and operations griping. <laughs> Back to the ransomware. <laughs> Okay, so Eternal Blue, CVE 2070144 was a remote control, remote code execution that, that executed over server message block, Microsoft networking, SMB ver version one. Never known to have vulnerabilities. Yeah, well, turns out NASA, or sorry, NASA, NSA knew about the vulnerabilities mm -hmm. and kept it to themselves. <gasps> That's very unlikely. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, this goes to Stuxnet. Yeah. If they didn't do that kind of thing, they wouldn't have been able to package uh, or allegedly 
they wouldn't have been able to package multiple zero days into a single piece of malware. Yeah, exactly. Again, we don't know who did it. We don't know even if it was US attributable, if it was the NSA or the DOD or who. Um, please don't sue me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it shouldn't surprise us. Yeah. What was a bit of a surprise was that though was that these exploits were probably stolen. Mm-hmm by a set of folks called the Shadow Brokers, which as are shadowy, and we actually don't know very much about them. Um, what? I, I, wait, wait, year, what year was this, the Shadow Brokers? This is all 2017. 2017. Yeah, um, we may end up doing something specifically on the Shadow Brokers or more, or possibly more widely um, the marketplace for, for selling exploits. Um, hmm. But I didn't get that deep into the shadow brokers. I did read one uh, paper about it that was basically, here's what we know that they've done, but they don't. But we don't. We weren't actually able to attribute very much about them yeah. other than their actual activities. The the reason I asked that was um, I don't know if you've ever played Mass Effect. Yes. Yeah, Mass Effect. Yes. Mass Effect Two had the shadow broker DLC, and that was in 2010. So. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Although I, I think it probably would be funny if a video game said all right we're just going to take all of the names of hacking groups and we're going to use that as kind of our as kind of our our pool to pick names out of yeah yeah exactly like, that sounds familiar like, that sounds pretty cool let's go for that hey like i said nmap was used in multiple movies yep um so the nsa knew about the vulnerabilities figured out that they were probably stolen so then told microsoft hey maybe you want to patch these <laughs> We've known about them for a while and been sitting on it, but like, hey. But we're jealous and we won't, don't want let to let anybody else use them. Yeah, someone took our toys. Now fix it, please. Yes. So they delayed the February Patch Tuesday release and released the patch for this in March of uh, 2017. Mm, okay. And subsequently, two ransomware campaigns used this for propagation. Uh, the WannaCry virus was uh, released on May 12th, 2017. And normally, I don't give the days, but it was active for about four days. <laughs> it infected more than 300,000 hosts, mostly in Russia, Ukraine, India, and Taiwan. Mm. Now, the reason it was so short was there was a, a uh, security researcher, let's call him, named Marcus Hutchins, who figured out that there was a kill switch built into the system. The way I read it, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to see exactly how all of this worked. Uh, there's probably a really great write-up somewhere that I just wasn't able to find. But the system checked to see if a particular website was available on the network. Oh, yeah. Uh, so on their test networks, they had this website available and had a DNS resolution for this on their DNS server. Mm -hmm. So it was a local network site. So what he did was he figured out what that site was, registered it, and put it out as public access. Gotcha. Now, um, I'm not sure if I remember this exactly right, but uh, apparently they did multiple releases where they, where they all had a kill switch in them. And it was a different kill switch, and, they just, and the kill switches were progressively found very quickly. Mm, okay. So Hutchins was arrested by the FBI for work related on other malware projects. Um, and he was a UK citizen living in the US at the time. Mm -hmm. So he, in a lot of ways, he was kind of a classic gray hat. Yeah. Um, where he was 
playing around with some malware and operating as a security researcher. He had actually done several things where, where um, he had a blog there where he exposed cyber criminals and malicious tools, as well as very likely based on some re so reporting by uh, Krebs on security that he was involved in development of some malware tools. Mm -hmm. So the FBI arrested him and they had him in custody. Um, the community said, hey, the FBI case is actually quite weak. He's done a lot of good work and he really was right in front of everything for WannaCry, which is a really dangerous piece of malware and made sure and was the guy who made sure that, th that it wasn't worse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So by 2019, there was a plea deal uh, accepted where, where he was given time served and one year supervised release. Okay. Now he's still not allowed back in the U.S. right now and has been trying to get a pardon. Yeah. Um, but it didn't go as badly for him for his malware work as it would have otherwise um, because of the defense work he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we do know that WannaCry was attributed to uh, North Korean sp state sponsorship. And the Department of Justice uh, indicted three North Koreans related to this, an ATM cash-out scheme, and the Sony hack. <laughs> the, the indictment was, uh, was submitted on uh, February 2021, so just recently. Those guys are, are, are um, supposed to be members of APT36, or the Lazarus Group, hmm. also known as the, uh, the Lazarus Group. Um, and now... <laughs> Not Petya. <laughs> Not Petya was detected in June of 2017. It acted like Petya, did the same master boot record and encryption stuff, but it used Eternal Blue to propagate. Mm, okay. We don't know how they got the source code, whether it was somebody related, whether it was whether the toolkit was sold, whether they deconstructed it, however that happened. Right. Um, but Not Petya was associated with the black energy, gray energy um, APT which was responsible for, or has been attributed the responsibility for the Ukraine power grid attack in 2014, which I think we might want to do an episode all on its own. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I only vaguely recall. We'll, we'll figure out when that fits into the, into the schedule. Yeah. Um, but it's very interesting, especially when you look at it in terms of the uh, other actions taken by the Russians and the doctrine of hybrid warfare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, but it was attributed to Russian state sponsorship. All of the dark energy or black energy, uh, gray energy stuff was attributed to Russian state sponsorship. So what we're seeing here in both of these instances is nation state actors getting into the act. Mm -hmm. yeah. The last one we're going to talk about is, I alluded to a little bit of when, mal when uh, crypto malware fails. There was a piece of crypto malware called KillDisk. Um, well, the Windows-based malware was observed first in December 2016 and was also attributed to the Black Energy crowd. It may very well have been a precursor attempt to not Petya. The Linux version overwrote the Grub bootloader, mm -hmm. um, but ESET, the, 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 the security firm ESET, identified that the key to decrypt was never saved either locally or to command and control. So you could never decrypt the stuff. Yeah, what the hell? <laughs> Oops. So it, it 
looked and smelled and even acted like uh, crypto malware, mm-hmm. but it was wipeware because it couldn't decrypt. Yeah, it turns out you kind of need to include the key. After several of these, uh, Crypto Locker started this research, but, but, but it kind of solidified in 2015, 2016. Um, and we see actually several products related to it or features in, in host security products related to it that crypto malware, because of the way that it operates, the fact that it basically rewrites a file in a very different way, they were able to start tracking the behavior of crypto malware mm-hmm. occurring. Um, and that was actually a really important point. And oh, okay. the reason why a lot of the endpoint detect- detection and response and other you know, behavioral and heuristic host level security was valuable. Um, a lot of previous viruses, that was not hugely more effective than traditional signature-based analysis, but crypto malware made that a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And in addition, there were there are features um, that are kind of are supposed to enhance undelete that were leveraged by some of these systems to uh, to make it easy to very easy to recover from crypto malware. Right. Uh, I had one demoed to me at a at a uh, black hat. I guess it was two years ago, where they showed, even if the crypto malware was allowed and the and the files were encrypted, by plugging into Windows's built-in recovery service, a backup and recovery service, they were able to restore the files basically instantly. Oh, interesting. That's kind of cool. So advancements in defenses happened based on this kind of uh, of malicious activity, and yeah. um, which is really cool to see things responding. I, I know that sometimes it feels like the ind- the security industry kind of rests on its laurels a little bit. Um, so I'm always very, uh, very happy to see this kind of advancing of the state of the art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, mm-hmm. similar to just, you know, a regular arms race is that the bad guys are always coming up with brand new stuff to, you know, do something. And then, yeah, the you know security side of things, tends to lag at the start and then we come up with something you know nifty to counter it just in time for them to come up with something new well um the way that the the pro- the progression has always been described to me and i have to admit that i agree that this seems to be what happens is that the bad guys have two phases development and exploitation hmm. when they have something to exploit they go full boy bore on exploiting it uh, and they'll even ride the diminishing returns to some if not predictable level, consistent. Yeah. And then as soon as they no longer have a crack to drive a, a, a truck through, they go into development to try and find another thing to exploit. Uh, they do not appear to, and I'm saying industry-wide, they don't appear to have a really good two-track system where development occurs while exploitation is occurring, even if it's two different groups. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because... You know, you, you just, yeah, you want to hard press the advantage you have because you know it's going to be patched eventually. Yeah. So, yeah, like drive as many trucks through as, that crack as you can before it gets patched up and then just find the next crack. Yeah. The driving a truck through any crack was actually an analogy I got from Wall Street doing derivative uh, options. Not really. I thought it was a roadrunner coyote. Uh, yeah. Well, it was, hey, 
find, you know, you find any inefficiency in the market that you can identify mm-hmm. and then you drive as much money through that as possible yeah. to exploit that inefficiency as much as you can right now because it's not going to last. If you're taking somebody's lunch money with it, they're going to fix it. And if it's just an inefficiency in the market, as soon as somebody else sees you making money with it, they're going to do the same thing. And eventually the inefficiency no longer exists. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's just mm-hmm. human nature in general, because you see the same thing like in MMOs, like, yeah. you know, hey, if we can do this one thing a million times and get a huge benefit out of it, as opposed to doing this other thing 10 million times. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why would we be like, you know, they're going to patch it eventually. Let's just slam the shit out of it, and, you know, stay up for 24 hours and just bang it out to, you know, get whatever rewards we can get before, you know, they come in, like, you know, slap things. Classic arms race. <laughs> anyway, that's part two. Um, I had intended it for this to be two parts, but since we got to about 2017 on this one, uh, and that doesn't even take into account some of the really big incidents that our, our listeners probably have heard of, we're probably going to do a part three, though maybe not immediately. Yeah, well, that's good because everything, there's there's never been a bad trilogy in history. Never. Matrix 3, Jurassic Park 3, Rocky 3? Rocky 3 was a good one. Was it good? Okay. That was the one against Clubber Lang. That was the one with uh, Mr. T. Oh, that was good. Okay. So what you're doing right now is you're, set, is you're building up the expectation level for part three. It's going to be, it, I'm, I'm not going to be able to clear it. it well, it, it's either going to be a Matrix 3 or it's going to be a Thor 3. So, you know, yeah. stay tuned. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.